Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Christian Church Podcast. Rocky is a community of believers who want to know Jesus and love like Him. Let's take a listen to this week's message. Well, church, it is so great to be with you, to those in the room with me, to those uh, watching online or at the other campuses. So great to be with you guys as well. Uh, I had a chance to meet Sean about four years ago. He didn't tell this part of the story. uh, Over a ping pong table. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen Sean play ping pong, but... It wasn't pretty, is all I'm going to say. And so, you know, it was really a a beautiful moment. I beat him a number of times. Um, But here's the deal. I have not played ping pong in the four years since then. And yesterday, I was at his house and found out he's got a ping pong table. And he's like, hey, why don't don't we play? And uh, the first two games, he absolutely smokes me. Now, I don't want to say that all he's doing is playing ping pong right now, but I have my doubts on anything else he's doing because he's gotten a lot better, uh, and it has been so fun to have a a friendship with him over these years, and uh, for him to be your pastor, I don't know if you realize what a good one you've got, but uh, one of the things that I, and I said this to him yesterday, Sean just embodies the fruits of the Spirit uh, like very few people I've ever met. And when you get to know him and you see his heart and you see the way he leads, uh, it just oozes Jesus. And, uh, and I love being friends with a guy like that, and you are blessed to have him as your pastor. Well, today I want to look at a story that uh, has been incredibly significant for me this year uh, that I, I think might be a little bit of an encouragement for you. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 4. I want to invite you to turn there, and we'll be there in just a moment. As you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. When I was a kid, uh, I used to go shopping with my mom. And, uh, and it was like uh, a chance for me to, to feel like I was the man. I would take care of my mom and I would handle the heavy stuff for her. And, and my job was always to push the shopping cart. And so I'd go to the grocery store with my mom and, and I would just walk behind her and I would push the cart and that was my job. And, and I could handle that and I, I loved doing that as a kid. I remember one day in particular, we were uh, going to the, the, the store and I was taking my job very seriously. I'm pushing this shopping cart around and the weirdest thing happened and, and it left me speechless. As I was pushing this shopping cart around, following my mom, you know, she's putting things in, all of a sudden, this lady comes up from behind me, grabs something out of my cart, and vanishes. Now, I was so taken aback by this that I just froze. I turned around, the lady was gone, and I'm like, did, did that just really happen? Did she just take something out of my shopping cart? And, and uh, again, I was just so stunned. I didn't say anything. I just kept walking a little bit, and I'm trying to process, no, there's no way a lady just took something out of my shopping cart. That doesn't make any sense. That would be weird. And so we keep walking around the next corner, and again, out of nowhere, this lady, like a ninja, comes and grabs something out of the cart and vanishes. And I'm like, this is so bizarre. And so I'm, I'm like trying to figure out, what do I do about it? Can I solve this? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Should I fight her? You know, like, what do you do when you're a little kid and there's a woman taking things out of your shopping cart? And, and so I'm trying to figure out how to solve this and, and, and be, you know, uh, be a man about it. And, and it was the third time this lady comes back, grabs something out, vanishes again. That I'm like, I, I just got to tell my mom. And so I said, hey, mom, hold on a second. I know this is going to sound really weird. Um, I said, I think there's a lady taking things out of our shopping cart. She's done it like three times. And my mom looks at me, she looks at our shopping cart and she goes, Jeremy, that's not our cart. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm gonna give it back to her then so she can get her items back, right? You ever have one of those moments where you were convinced you knew what was going on 
And then you found out you, you weren't real, real in the know. And, and so today I wanna give a story like that, that if you've been to John 4 before, if you have read this, if you have uh, you know, talked about this in, in church, uh, you no doubt have a take, your own version of John chapter four that has made sense to you. And what I'd like to offer today, and uh, you're free to disagree with this, but I'd like to offer a different take on it. Uh, as I have studied this, I'm going, you know what, there's something in this passage that I had never seen before, that I think a lot of us have never seen before. And it's been one of the most encouraging messages for me this year. And I wanna share it with you. And, and so I invite you to read John chapter four with me and, and we're gonna look at it in a different perspective than maybe you've heard it before. And I just want you to consider that maybe there's something here that God wants to encourage you with today. And so in John chapter four, begin reading in verse one. Since Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Now, you've got to ask the question here, uh, who are the Samaritans? Uh, what is the context? What, what, what is this scene that John is painting for us? And, and so I, I would uh, summarize the, the Samaritans by, by letting you know the fourfold creed they had. And I'll show you this quickly. There's four things they believed in. It was one God, which was Yahweh. So that was part of the, the four. Uh, there's one book, which was the Torah. There was one place of worship, which was Mount Gerizim, and there was one prophet, which was the prophet Moses. So I don't know if we're going to bring these up here. So there we go. There's four. Yep. So these are the fourfold creed that this is what made you a Samaritan. You adhere to these four. Now here's what you have to understand. Most Jews of that day would agree on the first two. They go, yeah, yeah, we, we, we can line up on those. So the Samaritans and the Jews, they had those in common. But where they differed dramatically was on three and four. The Jews would say, whoa, whoa, that's the wrong place to worship. And there's more prophets than just Moses. And, and so they all of a sudden would, would cross over here. Now, you may read this today and go, what's the big deal? Like, why were, they, why were they so against each other if they have so much in common? And so I'd like to try and illustrate that for you with a modern day example. If you've ever seen a, a rivalry in sports, you know that it can get very passionate, very emotional, uh, and sometimes not always logical. Now, I happen to be a diehard baseball fan, and my team is the New York Yankees. Now, I, I tell you this because the New York Yankees have a rivalry with the Boston Red Sox. And, and, and so if you know sports, if you know baseball, this is like a huge rivalry. And I'm not just like a little bit of a Yankee fan. Like we have five kids and all five kids have Yankee middle names. Okay, like that's the level of fan I'm at. And so I, I cannot help but be a Yankee fan wherever I go. And, and so a Yankee fan and a Red Sox fan are polar opposites. I mean, it is like considered one of the greatest rivalries in all of sports. And so you see this whenever a Yankee fan is around a Red Sox fan. Now, every now and then I'll hear people say things about the Yankees, the Red Sox, and, and as a diehard fan, you, you can't help but jump in. Uh, I'll hear someone say, oh, I like the Yankees and I like the Red Sox. To which I'll say, oh, you don't follow baseball. Right, Because you cannot be a Yankees fan and a Red Sox fan unless you're just casually watching games. You're not really into it because there's no way that you could be both. Now, I'll hear someone say, and I have this happen all the time. Someone go, oh, I'm a, I'm a Red Sox fan because I'll, I'll be wearing something Yankee gear. And without even skipping a beat, this just comes out of me. I'll say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. 
And, and I'll do this to strangers. Uh, yeah, I'll do this to strangers. And, and I, I met Ron uh, on staff here, and Ron told me he was a Red Sox fan. Immediately out of my mouth, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I, I just don't know where it comes from, but as a Yankee fan, there's just this rivalry there that you know this is an intense rivalry. But here's what's interesting. If you put me in a room with just me and a Red Sox fan, uh, we're going to have a clash, right? Because we fundamentally uh, root for polar opposite teams. But if you put me in a room with a football fan who doesn't like baseball, I will have less in common with the football fan than I will with the Red Sox fan. Why? Because the Red Sox fan at least likes baseball, so we have baseball in common, but then we differ on the other things. And this is a way you can understand the Samaritans and the Jews. They have a lot in common. They're not complete opposites. They're in the same sport, if you will. But there's differences within that sport that get amped up even more. So there's a lot of things when you read the scriptures and you find out the Jews and the Samaritans and all the tensions there, there's a lot of overlap, but there's also some key disagreements. And Jesus is walking in to Red Sox territory, because he's a Yankee fan, in case you didn't know. So Jesus walking in, and again, John is setting this up. They're going in to the, the other team, right? This is, this is foreign, you know, this is a, you're, you're playing on someone else's home field advantage. You're the away team. That's the setting that John is, is giving here with the Samaritans and the Jews. Now there's a detail that we just read in this passage that I think sets the stage for what John is trying to do as a storyteller. Let me read one of the verses we've already read, read it to you again and see if you catch the detail that he's showing. This is verse five. It says, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now do you catch the detail in that verse? You may be going, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see any detail. I, I would like to suggest that this introduces another person into this story. Now, what, what person? We'll, we'll call this person a silent witness uh, because this person is dead. Uh, but what you have to realize is he's putting us in a specific location for this story to take place. If you go back to the Old Testament and you go, what, what connects this story with the Old Testament? You find Joshua chapter 24, verse 32 says this. The bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought along with them when they left Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the plot of land Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamar for 100 pieces of silver. Now, why am I reading that? Because John is tying back to this idea. And, and, and so as a storyteller, he's going, hey, you know who's witnessing this story about to take place? The bones of Joseph. Now you may be thinking, why, why does that matter? Because I think what John is doing is calling to mind the story of Joseph as we read what's about to happen. Now, you may be unfamiliar with the story of Joseph, and, and if that's the case, I encourage you to go to Genesis 37 this week. You can begin there and read about an incredible story of what God did through the life of Joseph. I don't have time to go into that, but I want to suggest that what John is doing here in, in, in chapter 4 is, is bringing Joseph to mind in the detail he just shared so that we would be primed. That as we read the story of this woman, we are already going to think about the story of Joseph. And if you know that story of Joseph, I'm going to try to connect a few of these details to show you what I think John is doing. So let's go to verse 7. It says, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. 
The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Like we don't talk. What is going on here? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons, remember Joseph, and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Well, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Well, I I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, the story gets a little weird there, the last part, right? Jesus seems to know some interesting details about this woman's life. And in this story, the way we normally talk about it, we talk about the time of day, right? This takes place around noon. Noon is not the ideal time to go in the hot sun to go draw water which would imply that this woman is avoiding people. She's avoiding those in her community. She's trying to get water when no one else will be around. And so we gotta ask, why? Well, she's probably marginalized. She's probably, something has happened to her story that she doesn't fit in with everyone else. But again, why? Why is she marginalized? Now, the way that I was raised to understand this story in the traditional way we unpack is that we'll say, well, this was an overly sinful woman. And so she had so many sins, so many things. She was like the pariah and no one wanted to talk to her. No one wanted to be around her. And so she was avoided. She was alone because of what she had done. And that's a traditional way of understanding it. I would like to suggest, I don't think that's the most compelling way to understand the story. I think there's a better way to understand what's happening. Well, how should we understand then what is going on with her situation? Now, we've got to use our imaginations either way because we don't have a ton of details, but we have a few. So we go, well, how does she have five husbands? Well, what's the deal with that? Well, there could be a variety of explanations. Maybe a number of her husbands had died and she had outlived them. That could be one explanation. Maybe her husbands had been unfaithful to her and had left her. That could be another explanation. But as I really got into this text and I began to study it, I would like to suggest a different way of of what I think is the most plausible explanation of why is this woman marginalized? Why is she set apart? Here's my theory, and it's just my theory. Uh, You can take it or leave it, but here's what I would like to suggest. I think it's because she was unable to have children, okay? I think she was the kind of woman that wanted to have kids, tried to have kids, but couldn't have kids. Now, you're going, why why that? Why, Why that specific reason? Well, one of the reasons why is if you understand this culture, one of the things you realize, in ancient Israelite society, women could not initiate a divorce. 
So if a woman said, hey, I want to have five husbands, that was not up to her. She didn't get to decide it as you might be able to decide that today. Now, again, we can go to the Old Testament. We can read what, was, what the rules were for them and how they operated. In Deuteronomy 24, uh, it says this. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Just let that make you a little bit uncomfortable, right? It's very one-sided, as you'll notice. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes her a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another man. But if the second husband also turns against her, writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away, or if he dies, the first husband may not marry her again. Why? For she has been defiled. Almost sounds a lot like the woman in our story in John chapter 4 who has been passed over and passed over and passed over and has now gone through so many different guys. She has been defiled. Now again, as Deuteronomy shows us, she could not have initiated this. It was all based on the guy, all based on him not being pleased with her. And what would make more sense than a guy who marries this woman and thinks we're gonna have a great life together and then finds out, oh, you can't give me a family? You can't give me kids? I'm gonna send you off with a document of divorce and I'm gonna move on to someone else. And then the next guy thinks, oh, look at this woman. She's gonna be incredible. We're gonna start a family together. And then he finds out she can't have kids and he moves on. And this woman has been cycled through all these different men who have said, we are not happy with you. We're not pleased with you. We were gonna discard you. And now she lives as the defiled woman. You're going, okay, hold on. That, that might work for the first one. What about the other detail, right? Jesus says that she's living with a man who's not her husband. And where do we all go? This is premarital sex. This is, this is bad. You know, you can't do this. But notice the text doesn't say that. Jesus just says she's living with a man who's not her husband. And we don't know what this means. She could have uh, been living with a distant relative. Or maybe she's living in some situation far from ideal just because that's the only way she can survive because she's a defiled woman and she has no ability in a culture like that. See, I think what's happening here is Jesus is looking at this woman who has had so much pain, so much hurt. She doesn't feel like she fits in even in the people around her. And Jesus is looking at her going, I know, I know. I know your story, I know your pain, I know all the names of these guys who have written you off. I know what you have been through. And for the first time, she is embraced. She is welcomed by someone who fully knows all of her pain. The author Parker Palmer says this, the human soul doesn't want to be advised or fixed or saved. It simply wants to be witnessed exactly as it is. You ever wanted that from God? I just wanna be witness. I wanna, I wanna be seen, I wanna be known, not just for the good parts, for, for the hard parts too. And I think that's what this woman gets. And this is very much in line with the story of Joseph who went through pain after pain after pain. And at the, the line you get repeatedly in the story of Joseph, that God was with him. Now it doesn't work out well for Joseph, but God was with him as he goes through pain after pain after pain. Go back to verse 19. 
Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Now again, that line to us, we're like, big deal, it doesn't matter. To them, that was point number three of the four, right? Jesus is going, it doesn't even matter where you worship. That's like saying, Yankees, Red Sox, it doesn't even matter, they're both baseball teams. You're like, wait, what? That's an incredible statement for Jesus to make. Hey, this rivalry that has set us all apart, it won't even matter. Jesus says, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Can you imagine this woman hearing those words from him? Just then the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well. Why was she there? To get water. She leaves her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And so the people came streaming from the village to see him. Now, why do I think that the traditional explanation of this woman as an overly sinful woman isn't the most likely explanation? Because if this was the town pariah that everyone avoided, I don't think that last verse would have happened, right? If everyone knew that this woman's got all kinds of issues, they're not all gonna go run. It'd be like this. She comes running out going, guys, you gotta see, there's this guy that knows everything. They'd be like, look, everyone knows what you've done, Karen. All right, we all, the whole village knows that you've been around with guys. We all got it. They would not come streaming to see that. No, but imagine this. Imagine if this woman had been depressed for the only time they had ever known her because she was defiled, she was rejected. Her life was marked by pain. And for the first time ever, they see joy in her face. That would send them running. What has given her joy? What could someone say to her to take this depressed woman who has been defined by the pain in her life and now is running to us with joy. What could have done that? I think that's a compelling reason for an entire village to come streaming. Pastor Judah Smith says this about this story. It says, remember she was at the well in the blazing heat of the noon sun. This was to avoid people and not be seen. She left seeking people, the ones she had been avoiding what just happened. It wasn't just, oh, I got a lot of sins and this guy knows them and you guys gotta, no, no, no. There had been a transformation in this woman. This woman who had been marked by pain, marked by hurt, now has a story, now has found something. 
So if you jump down to verse 39, you see this. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. You know, if you know the story of Joseph and you go back and you read beginning in Genesis 37, you will read Joseph going through pain after pain after pain, and it's unjust pain. It is uncalled for. It is not fair at all. And if you read the story long enough, you find out that God uses the pain in Joseph's life to bring incredible healing to the people around him. Because Joseph hurt so badly, he was able to offer something so profound, so healing for the people around him. That's the story of Joseph. Could it be that that's the same story here? This woman who had been so defined by pain after pain after pain now has a story to tell, a story to share with those around us. And this could be a story of how God uses pain, how God uses healing to bring something for all of us. So today, I wanna ask you a simple question. What pain have you experienced? What pain has marked your life? What pain has shaped you? Now, this could be a pain from when you were a child, a pain from a few years ago. It could be a pain from 2020. They're going, this is my pain. How has it shaped you? And what I wanna tell you is that Jesus knows it. He sees it. He witnesses your pain. He, he sees all of the depths of it. And yet he wants to offer you something. He wants to use that. He doesn't want that to be wasted. And so when you bring all of this, you go, this is what I'm carrying with me. This is what I have. And you come to Jesus, Jesus goes, hey, watch what I can do. So the encouragement that I have been really leaning into this year is this simple idea. And if you want to write something down, I encourage you to write this down. Pain takes on a purpose when given to Jesus. Pain takes on a purpose when given to Jesus. If you hold the pain yourself, there's no purpose there. But if you give that pain to Jesus, if you open yourself up to Jesus and go, what could you do here? All of a sudden, Jesus can do something beautiful. You know, to be perfectly transparent with you, uh, this has been the most painful year of my life. I've gone through more hurts, uh, more sorrows this year than any year before. We just relocated our family after living in Oregon for three years, thinking that God had us on this journey and we were going this direction and had to walk away from that, had to release that. And there's a lot of confusion there, a lot of hurt there, a lot that I'm still processing through. And yet it's incredible to know when, when I wanna ask the question, what was the point of that? Why? Why did this play out this way? Why didn't this, you know, play out the way I envisioned it? To realize that Jesus is there and he goes, I know, I know, I see it. I'm aware of all of it and I'm gonna use it. I'm gonna use it to bring healing to those around you. See, now all of a sudden the pain in my life, the, the things that have, have been so hard to carry, now I realize, oh, that's a gift that I have for the people around me. And just like God used Joseph and used the pain in Joseph's life to bring healing to many people. And just like God used this woman in John chapter four and her pain to bring healing to this entire village. Could it be 
that God wants to use the pain that you and I have experienced to bring healing to those around us. And how would you view your pain differently if you knew that Jesus was gonna do something with it, that other people would be better because of what you have had to endure? Would that change the way that you view the pain in your life? Now, one more detail to notice as this story resolves and it's got a happy ending, these people come flooding in. You go, that is so cool. I want you to notice that nothing actually changed in this woman's life. She didn't suddenly get pregnant. She didn't suddenly have a husband to take care of her. None of this resolved in the ways that we might envision it resolving. But she had found joy in the midst of her pain. And that is available to you and I today. It may not have the happy ending you're wanting. It may not resolve the way you think it should, but you and I can literally decide today. We wanna experience joy in the midst, not in spite of, in the midst of the pain that we have experienced. I wanna close with a quote from a lady named Stephanie Sparkles. And this is someone who uh, is, is currently battling cancer. You know, we often talk about pain in the past tense. This is the rearview mirror. I, I got over it. This was so great. This is someone going, here's what I'm currently dealing with. And the perspective that you get in the midst of pain, I wanna close with these words. She says this, I love when people that have been through hell walk out of the flames carrying buckets of water for those still consumed by fire. How does Jesus want to use the pain in your life for the healing of those around you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are in awe of a story like this, a story like Joseph's, where, where you can work in impossible situations that to us seem so hopeless, and yet you show up. You can redeem pain. You can redeem the hurts. And you don't always resolve it the way that we might want, but you show up and you witness it and you live it with us. So God, I don't know what pain we have each brought here today. I don't know what pain we're carrying with us, but you know, you're very aware of it. You've witnessed it and you invite us, not just to hold on to that pain, to invite you into it, to invite you to use even the very worst, the very hardest parts of our story to be a gift for those around us, to, to realize we have something to offer those. And so God, may you use us as a church to bring healing to those around us, not because our stories are all amazing and have all gone the way we wanted, but because we have hurts, because we have pains, because we have invited you in, would you use us to bring incredible healing to those around us? We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Oh, 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 oh,